talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Thor Ragnarok, released in October 2017, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach addressing the Labour Party conference on accusations of ingrained anti-Semitism, Martin Scorsese's abundant acreage available, or Jennifer Aniston in The Yellow Birds instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Thor Ragnarok when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. A blast from start to finish, and the best of the Thor movies by some distance. The entire story is about as bleak and dark as the films have got yet, but they just don't let up with the tremendous gags, and the battle sequences are equally tremendous. And then there's that cliffhanger. That's what I had to say about it, though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Thor Ragnarok is musician Gareth Irons. Gareth, where can people find you? I'm the co-host of the Retrospecticus podcast, which looks at the Simpsons and modern history. And that's at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. And I play the bass for a band called Codebreak. And we're at codebreak.bandcamp.com. Also on Spotify. And we have a YouTube channel where we've been reviewing albums for the last few weeks as we can't practice or gig at the time of recording due to actual real life Ragnarok. Okay, well, on that note, before we go any further, Gareth, what happens in Thor Ragnarok? Well, after preventing Ragnarok almost immediately by defeating the fire demon Surtur, wouldn't you know it, you wait all this time for Ragnarok and two come along at once, this time in the form of his sister Hela. Exiled and beyond hope, he's pressed into service as a gladiator and sets out to save Asgard with some unlikely allies. And oh my God, I made that sound rubbish, but it's really good. Okay, well, this was partly answered when you appeared on here to talk about Avengers Age of Ultron. But Gareth, how much did you know about Thor before you saw this film? A reasonable amount, but I do have to say that on the page... Thor is probably my least favourite Avenger. I found the comics slow-moving. The dialogue was often in an unreadable, sort of stone-clearing type, old-timey font. And the character's a bit uninspiring. It's it's kind of the, the closest that Marvel had to Superman, being an essentially unbeatable and infallible character, except for Hyperion, who was a literal rip-off of Superman. And the odd thing in all this is I actually really like Norse mythology and the, the stories of the gods and their destruction at Ragnarok, all of which the comics do actually still pretty closely too at least up to the point where Thor is sent to Earth so maybe I'm just being picky I think the the problem is the Marvel heroes I like the best are the sort of fallible ones We've got um, Tony Stark, who has many character flaws and some physical frailties. And uh, that comes with a genuine desire to improve things. And Peter Parker, who's a, a teenage nerd trying to carve a path in life for a place of reduced privilege. And Bruce Banner deals very publicly with manifestations of his traumas. And you compare these to Thor, the actual god of actual thunder. It's a difficult sell, to me anyway, someone who's, who's used to flawed characters. And also, Iron Man had business intrigue and high-tech gadgetry, and, and you know, the X-Men, they had sort of progressive political allegories. Even the Punisher had sort of complex moral questions, and Thor just seemed to be very, here come lightning, 
go boom. And his two solo cinematic outings up until this point have largely cashed in my fears on that one. They were sort of, at least they were science fiction, because the MCU seems to acknowledge that they're aliens, the Asgardians, rather than gods. And it's just their power differential that makes them seem godlike to humans. But the films, and especially the Dark World, are just oddly drab. Well, I've got to say, I really like the first one. But yeah, the Dark World, we've got to sort of deal with that first, which is, that was a real misfire. And this is a real step up. And it's entirely down... I think to the director because we've covered it in the actual episode about it but Alan Taylor who directed Thor The Dark World I think was completely the wrong choice he got it really wrong he was hired because of his work on Game of Thrones and he declined to be involved with Thor Ragnarok apparently he was originally approached but he gave out a weird statement that basically said something along the lines of I had complete freedom while I was making the film and then it turned into something else post-production which indicates to me that you know the film was in even more of an unmarvel-like state when it was first delivered and it's one of the ones that doesn't fit for this though we got taika waititi who apparently his pitch for it was he just submitted clips cut from big trouble in little china to the tune of immigrant song by led zeppelin was basically how i would make this that's about as far removed from the dark world as you can get and i'm not surprised he got the gig because that's basically what it is it like takes its cues from over-the-top 80s action films but that's the strength of the whole marvel cinematic universe is when they really got going they weren't afraid to make every film while they were still kind of coherent and you know of a whole they weren't afraid to take different approaches go into different genres with them and they're still not and this is their 80s action movie basically a bit more sword and sorcery than you know you maybe think of the genre but I think that's what really lifts it. And the other amazing thing I found out about him was he deliberately, when it was finished, did a 90-minute bare-bones cut of it so he could work out what needed to go back in and what didn't. The logic being that if he missed it while it was at 90 minutes, it had to go in, and otherwise it stays out. That did mean, unfortunately, we lost one thing that would have been a really, really key thing here, which is apparently both he and Tessa Thompson worked on the assumption, which is hinted at in the comics, of Valkyrie, who obviously is another Asgardian who turns up in this, for reasons we'll probably come back to in a minute, they portrayed her as bisexual, and there was a scene, apparently, where she was sneaking out of a woman's bedroom, but that seems one of the ones that bit the dust in that edit. I think it's a shame that that is in there because that would have been a real progressive step forward for the whole MCU. Oh, 100%. Another thing that I heard about that was that they originally were going to have Thor and Valkyrie have a love subplot. And I'm really glad that they didn't because it, it adds to the unpredictability of the film. You can still see some of those beats in there, particularly in the dialogue and particularly in Thor's dialogue. But it's in Tessa Thompson's reactions to them where it's just kind of it's not going to happen. I think that's really good. It, it takes away from what you would expect from an 80s action style film, e.g., there is a man, there is a woman, they get together. Yeah, I, I think that's, that was a really good decision. But like you say, losing that bit of visibility is a real shame. It's a real shame. And this is, I think, around two hours and 12 minutes. I could be a bit wrong about that, but it feels like it zips by. It's the very opposite of Age of Ultron in that respect. I can imagine 90 minutes of this must have been just a, a wild ride. Yeah, I think so much of it is down to that care and attention to the editing. And apparently another thing was that even when the finished version was watched back, there were some scenes where, particularly where they went looking for Odin in New York, I think originally I found him in the back alley and he thought, that looks a bit too cliché, it's a bit too much what people will be expecting, let's go back and change that. And he did it with, you know, reshot a couple of other scenes as well. 
that's the final piece in the jigsaw really it is so much more than you would expect from the third film in the franchise that hadn't been doing as we've said that brilliantly up to that point i mean thor is brilliant in the other films in his own films i get the impression he didn't convince people as much i'd have to agree with you on that one in the avengers films thor is starting to get decent moments and humour. And it's largely from how he's playing off against the other characters. We've spoken before about how Captain America changes between films as he's sort of learning modern life. And this is this is where Thor almost comes of age in terms of his human influences that he's been feeling in the Avengers films. He really goes on a character journey from the sort of hubris-filled hero for the sake of being a hero character that annoyed me about Thor on the page to somebody who is becoming a worthy leader for his race, essentially. It's a joy to watch it happen. And what really surprised me watching it back was I kind of had the impression in my head there was a lot more standalone than a lot of the other films because, you know, obviously, again, we'll come back to this, but you've got the Hulk in there, you've got some returning characters in previous Thor films. I kind of thought that was it, though, and sort of out on a limb. But you've got Doctor Strange shows up in one sequence, Black Widow in, admittedly, it's a recorded message from her, but she's still in there. A couple of other people are at least referencing the knowledge, and there is a deleted scene where Yondu from Guardians of the Galaxy turns up amongst the crowd arguing with Hela. Apparently that was because Michael Rooker was nearby recording some material for Guardians of the Galaxy ride at Disney World. And he just, like, happens to be passing, and he thought, hey, why doesn't Yondu do a cameo? <laughs> and that was one of those that hit the cutting room floor. I'm watching it, I can see why they probably thought that's not that essential, because you basically see Yondu in the middle of her, you know, a quite serious and dramatic and threatening scene. And while that would work in Guardians of the Galaxy, it doesn't quite carry here, I think, so I can see why that went, to be honest with you. Well, Executioner... Stop it! Hold on, right there! Easy does it, hoss! Wait a minute! Is... I, you know where Kevin and Lou's offices are, y'all? Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. Go ahead, proceed. You mentioned Guardians of the Galaxy, and I think those films are the closest to this one in terms of the MCU, not just because of the recontextualization of the Asgardians as science fiction, essentially, as aliens in spaceships and zipping around the universe, but also that the humor, the sort of the lightness of touch and the sort of Thor hero journey I was talking about a second ago, that kind of it's almost like Star-Lord in a way. And that really helps when you get to the later Avengers films and you have Star-Lord and Thor butting heads. I won't go into this too much for, you know, not to undercut later podcasts. The fact that they've both been on this kind of journey towards selflessness i think really helps when you get to that point well as well as that it has occurred to me that i mean in this thor gets an enforced haircut which is why he's got that much sleeker look in avengers infinity war but he doesn't look that dissimilar from star lord so like you say when they put heads it's a bit of a malcolm mclaren john lydon thing where they think they even look similar to each other <laughs> no wonder they're arguing there is another guardians link in that did you know that 
Obviously, Jeff Goldblum is the Grandmaster in this, who is the kind of alien entertainment officer who basically abducts people to act as gladiators, which Thor and Valkyrie and a couple of other characters get caught up in. Did you know he actually made his first appearance in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? Now, even I didn't spot this. It's right at the end of the credits, isn't it? While they're it playing is. the, one um... of the dancing people, yeah. Yes, yes. Because the Grandmaster is the brother of the Collector in the comics and the collectors played by Benicio del Toro so I do wonder whether we'll get to see them to interact at some stage again try to stay a little bit spoiler free but the Grandmaster is in a bit of a predicament by the end of this film as you might expect and the collector I forget his fate but it probably wasn't great it's ambiguous that's all yeah, I'll say I would absolutely love to see more of Jeff Goldblum if you said to me beforehand and people did say to me beforehand obviously Jeff Goldblum is going to be in a Marvel film what? But it really works. It really does. And he is just, he could easily have been too Jeff Goldblum for the role. But he is just the right amount of Jeff Goldblum. He absolutely steals the film. When you consider it's a film with Loki in, that takes some doing. And, you know, there are other great funny characters as well. I mean, we've got to mention Korg and Meek, who are two of the most unlikely gladiators you'll ever see. They're just, like, totally nonplussed by the whole thing. And they make a reference to they tried to start a revolution amongst the gladiators, but they didn't print enough pamphlets. Korg is made of rock and says, you don't have to be afraid of me unless you're made of scissors. <laughs> but it isn't quite a joke, really. He actually sort of almost means it. And also, obviously, caught up in all of this is the Hulk. And like you say, about the kind of level of humour, it's interesting that Banner immediately goes from this terrible predicament he's been in, you know, imprisoned and forced to be the Hulk to fight, basically, not even for money for him, for money for other people who are betting on him. The second door turns up, it all becomes quite funny again there's a great line about where he says you can fly this thing you've got phds none of them are flying alien spaceships they are such an unlikely match of characters that they really work comically i think mark ruffalo he gets a really strong run here as bruce banner he wasn't obviously playing him in the hulk origin movie that's part of this mcu run so this is arguably his first proper run as the character outside of an avengers film and he's great and yeah, like you say, the comedic partnership with Chris Hemsworth is just, it's just brilliant. It's a delightful surprise as well, because I don't think anyone could have not been aware that the Hulk was in the film. That was front and centre in the trailers. I never stopped to consider that Bruce Banner would be in it, because it looked like the Hulk from the World War Hulk series, in which the Hulk was just the Hulk. He, he was never Bruce Banner in that, to my knowledge anyway. So I thought maybe they'd split the characters so that Bruce Banner and the Hulk were separate for a bit. But no, it's he's really good at and that fight between Hulk and Thor in the in the gladiator arena, you see a little bit of it in the trailer and you think, oh, yeah, I, I know how this is going to go. It's actually it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's not just them as well having the fight. It's the reactions of everybody else watching the fight and particularly Loki that really makes that. It's edge of the seat stuff for me, that. It is. And we've not even really touched on so far what's actually happening on Asgard because it starts quite amusingly where Loki is sort of posing as Odin and he's putting on plays with Matt Damon as him and Chris Hemsworth's brother as Thor kind of glorifying Loki. And then, obviously, their sister turns up, having been imprisoned in the hell dimension, and it's pretty nasty. And Kate Blanchett is superbly chilling. She's really good. That's a character that could so easily have been girl Loki. 
But yeah, it's completely different. The tone of the film changes every time she's on screen. She's never presented as anything but a tremendous threat to Asgard. And I just think that's brilliant. It's a combination of a fantastic actress, some great writing, and just knowing how to use that character. And she's responsible for the moment that absolutely turns the film on its head. Maybe about 20 minutes in, which is the destruction of Mjolnir, Thor's hammer. Aside from it being an excellent visual metaphor for his sort of absolute impotence in the face of Hela's threat at that stage, and the loss of his confidence thereafter, it's a really gutsy move to destroy Thor's kind of MacGuffin. It forces both the character growth that gives Thor the extra dimensions he'd been lacking, and it forces the writers to think outside the box for ways he could save the day. Along with losing his hair, there's some great sort of visual ways that you see the transformation that's going on. And of course he loses his eye. Not too much of a spoiler, because that plays a pivotal role in Avengers Infinity War. But also, it's showing that they think ahead with these things. The replacement eye that he gets is casually collected by Rocket in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Yeah, it's, oh, it's an I, incidental detail in one scene. I didn't realise that. There's just such a such a lot of care running through the whole MCU. It's so impressive to me. Like, I don't think anybody's ever really thought on that scale in terms of stringing a number of films and TV shows together. Like, obviously, I'm a big fan of Godzilla films, but there's not much of a throughput on that. It's just kind of, you know, Godzilla faces threat of the year, off we go. Same with James Bond. Until very recently, there's not been that much sort of coherent storytelling from film to film. But this just, from the word go, it seemed like they had a had a plan. Absolutely. And, you know, you do get things picked up in the TV series that aren't really picked up on in the films because either they didn't fit the narrative or there just wasn't room for them. But there's a lot of references in, not in Ragnarok in particular, but in a lot of the films of Rocks and Oil, who are an oil company, who were just named in the films, really, but are absolutely crucial to the plot of things like Cloak and Dagger and a couple of the other TV series. There is this back and forth there. Um, well, there's even in this, they went to the extent of fixing something that was technically continuity error, which is, we talked previously when we were discussing Avengers Age of Ultron about the post credit scene where Thanos picks up an Infinity Gauntlet and says, fine, I'll do it myself. Now, in the earlier Thor films, there is an Infinity Gauntlet in Odin's kind of lockup. But that obviously wasn't what he was taking. And in this, you get Hala goes into there, looks around, sees that and dismisses it as a fake. They're even back planning things to make sure they make sense. I mean, we've been talking in kind of, you know, quite technical detail about the structure of the film or the production history itself. But the thing that we really started to talk about, which we've got to come back to, is how much fun it is. It's 100%. hilarious, and it is a great action film as well. It starts in such a, an unusual way if you are familiar with Thor The Dark World, essentially. It starts off with Thor rambling away to a skeleton in a cage about how much of a hero he is, which really sets the scene for undercutting his hubris throughout the rest of the film. And about four minutes in, Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin kicks in, and he fights a massive fire giant and a couple of dragons, and it's just like, yeah, okay, I'm in, let's go. It's not fair to say that it doesn't let up in terms of that kind of pace and that kind of fun, because a lot of the bits on Asgard are very dark, but they work as a counterpoint to all the fun that's going on elsewhere. It's really good. It's everything you could ask for in a sci-fi film. I would go as far as to say it is a romp. I don't usually like romps, but this one 
Yeah, this one's good. And there's also, the actual soundtrack to it is done by Mark Mothersbaugh out of Devo, and it's consciously modelled, apparently, on the soundtracks of things like Flash Gordon. You know, in the 80s, you got there was a big craze for rock bands and rock stars doing the soundtracks to big action films, and they never quite did it in the way you'd expect. It wasn't just a parade of their songs. They would do kind of noodling, ambient synth experimental stretches and things like that, and he was deliberately hired to do something along those lines. I think it really works. I think it could come straight out of the 80s. 100%. It's a very unsung part of the film, but the soundtrack, it just makes it. It's just that last piece of the puzzle. I just want to make mention of this as well. I don't know if it's the time that we're living in at the moment, but I was particularly struck by a message that I I sort of took away from this film. I don't know if this is considered a spoiler after all this time, but the eventual solution for Thor, after trying to prevent Ragnarok, is to facilitate Ragnarok by empowering Surtur. Without destroying Asgard, Hela would continue to become more and more powerful. So rather than continue to exist in a world with a system that caused corruption and evil to become ever more cruel, he destroys the system. And he doesn't care what history tells him about that. Without wishing to put too fine a point on it, I think we could all learn a lesson from that. That, and of course, that the real Ragnarok was the friends we made along the way. Well, that does lead us neatly into one of the two scenes, which, again, you said we can't really say too much about in case it spoilers what happens in films going forwards. But let's just say the Grandmaster finds himself in quite a predicament in a way that some people that we may be referring to may do before too long. Who knows? But the other one, after such a fun and upbeat film, it's a complete change of direction. Essentially, they're flying through space on a ship containing most Asgardians, and Loki is just kind of pondering aloud whether he'll actually be welcome on Earth, given he keeps trying to destroy it. They encounter a massive spaceship, a massive, very ominous spaceship, in what is directly a lead-in to the opening sequence of Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, I don't think the word ominous would be too hyperbolic there. It really did. I can remember the gasps in the cinema. Nobody knew what it was, but it's just the way it looms over their ship, dwarfing what you thought was quite a giant spaceship to begin with. No good is going to come of that. That's all I can say. (laughs) So there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Gareth, if you had an army of intergalactic gladiators, what would you use them for? Something something Downing Street? (laughs) I think we know what the something something would be. Gareth, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this... Don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.